0: I love Mike's story so much, and it, it's such an incredible uh, just illustration of a lot of what we've been talking about in this series that we've been talking about called Gaining by Losing, and uh, and if you haven't been with us, basically in this series, what it is that we've been discussing is we've been talking about this very paradoxical principle that the Bible outlines for us of gaining by losing. We said basically what the Bible teaches is this, the Bible says that the pathway uh, to gaining the abundant life, the, the pathway to gaining a life of fulfillment and purpose as God defines it and as God desires it, is paradoxically not found in, in, through selfish ambition or through trying to hoard or keep it for yourself, but rather it's actually found in purposefully and deliberately choosing to lose yourself uh, for the sake of God and the sake of others. And it's through our losing that we truly gain. And so we've been talking about that paradoxical principle through this series. Of course, what's uh, what's prompted this series, some of you might remember... Is, uh, is this decision that we made to add Saturday evening services. And so as you have probably already heard, if you haven't, next week we're going to be adding two new opportunities for people to connect to the Medina East Campus at Grace Church by adding a five fifteen and 7 o'clock service. And so that decision that we made to do that, we said this is actually a really good opportunity for us in this series, uh, not just to announce that we're moving to Saturdays, uh, that we're adding Saturdays, I should say, uh, but really we said this is a great opportunity for us to have the deeper conversation, uh, kind of the deeper why. why. Why is it that Grace Church does things like add Saturday evening services? Why is it that Grace Church does things like multiply campuses? If you're, if you're newer to Grace, you might not know we have several campuses, and our intention is to have several more uh, campuses in, uh, all throughout the greater Akron area. Why is it that we do that? Uh, why is it that we multiply life groups? That our life groups are intended to multiply and to grow in those ways. Why is it that we do those things? And, and why not just leave well enough alone, right? Why not just enjoy the special thing that we have and just kind of, you know, just sit and, and not upset the apple cart? Why are we always pushing forward in these ways? And so this series has been a conversation where we said we just want to explain that. We want to have kind of the long conversation of why it is that we do the things uh, that we do. And so the first week, just as a quick recap, uh, if you weren't with us, we said one of the reasons that we do the things that we do is quite honestly, because of what we believe the Bible teaches about blessing. And if you're with us, you might remember we said, we believe that the Bible says that we are blessed to bless. Um, That anytime we find ourselves in a position where we are experiencing blessing from God, uh, that we are responsible to then ask the question, how can we leverage this blessing that God has given us to become a blessing to those around us? We said that we believe that blessing is not just a divine gift, but it's also a divine responsibility. And so the first week we said, man, God has blessed the Medina East Campus. And so because of that, we realize we are blessed to bless. We are blessed not just to enjoy that blessing, but to become a blessing to the community around us. So the second week we were together, we said another reason that we do the things that we do is also because of what we believe the Bible teaches about the church. And if you're with us, we said, man, the Bible teaches that the church is not just some social, uh, you know, man-made anthropological institution. That is not what the church is. Uh, That the church is not just some volunteer organization. That's not what the church is. That according to the Bible, uh, the church is a divinely commissioned organism. It's the body of Christ. It's been entrusted with the message of Jesus and the mission of Jesus to be the hands and feet of Christ into the community. And so basically what we said that week is we said that for those of us who follow Jesus, and of course we know not everyone in this room does follow Jesus, but we said for those of us who do, we believe we've been rescued by Christ to rescue. We've been rescued to rescue. And so we said, man, we've been blessed to bless, we've been rescued to rescue. And then last week, if you're with us, we said another reason uh, that we do the things that we do is because of what we believe the Bible teaches about generosity. And we said in the Bible, it teaches us that we have been given to give, uh, that Christ has has, who was rich, made himself poor, that we might become rich. And in so doing, he has called us into a life of radical generosity. And so we've talked about those things. We're blessed to bless, we're rescued to rescue. We're given to give. And if you missed any of those conversations, I would encourage you to go back and check those out. Uh, but this week, as we, as we look to end this series, uh, what I want to do is I want to look at just one final reason. Uh, there's obviously more than just four, but I want to look at one final reason why we do the things that we do. And today, what I want to talk about is, is the, the reason we do the things that we do is because of what we believe, the Bible teaches, about love. It's because of what we believe about love. Now, what in the world am I talking about? Well, let me show you what I'm talking about. If you've got your Bibles, why don't you take them with me? We're going to turn to Philippians chapter two. Okay, so Philippians uh, chapter two. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and uh, turn there with me if you would, Philippians two. And um, let me just say, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning or if you don't have a Bible app on your phone or on your tablet, um, you could just go ahead and take one of our black Bibles. You could turn uh, to page 819 in those black Bibles. That's where you're going to find Philippians chapter two. All right? And then, of course, as always, if you are a guest with us today and you don't own a Bible and you would like one, uh, just do me a favor. Take one of ours. You can just make that a gift. We want you to have a Bible. So you can write your name in that. uh, Go home and read that. We would encourage you to do that. Okay? So Philippians chapter 2. As you're finding that, um, let me tell you a quick story. So about a decade ago, and maybe it's a little bit more than a decade ago, uh, my wife and I, who then, she wasn't my wife then. We were just kind of dating Uh, But my wife and I were were helping to serve and lead at the college ministry over at our Bath campus. So as I said, Grace Church has many different campuses. One of our campuses is in Bath. And so my wife and I um, were able to serve uh, with the college ministry there. So about a decade ago, I was an intern. Uh, I was uh, kind of new to ministry, and I was working at Grace Church, kind of new to the whole thing. And about that same time, there was an event that started at the Bath campus uh, that actually still goes on today. And it was, it was an event called the Men's Golf Outing. And so basically, it was, a, it was an event that was designed uh, to be kind of a golf scramble. And the whole idea was that this would be an event that you could invite your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors to uh, that wouldn't step foot in church. And the hope was that you could kind of build relationships with them on the golf course. Actually, a really great idea. And so I remember when I heard about this, this men's golf outing, the first thing that came to my mind was my neighbor. And so I was living at an apartment at the time, and my neighbor, I remember, was a very avid golfer. And so I thought, man, this is a great opportunity. This would be a, a wonderful opportunity for me to connect with him and to kind of like build a relationship and stuff. So I'm like, awesome. So I went over to his apartment. I knocked on his door, and I said, I said hey, man, I said, my church is having this golf scramble thing. I said, I, I don't, I said, would you want to maybe get a team together? I said, it's pretty affordable. I like, would you be interested? And he was like, oh, I'm all about it. And I was like, great, that's awesome, we'll get a team. And so I walked away, and I was excited he agreed to do that. But as soon as I walked away, I realized that I probably made a mistake. And the reason I think I made a mistake was because up to that point in my life, I had literally never played a game of golf. (laughs) Like, ever. I I had never been to a driving range I honestly, I don't think I ever legitimately held a golf club with the purposes of playing golf up to that point in my life. And so I was like, I'm in trouble. I don't know how to play golf. I don't know anything about it. And I don't even have any golf clubs. And so I had to go to a friend of mine. I was like, dude, can I borrow some of your golf clubs? And he's like, I got this old set. And it was like this old rusty set of golf clubs. I was like, whatever, that works. I'll take those. And so I got them. Anyway, long story short, I remember the morning that I showed up to the golf course for this this event. And I pulled in, and I remember there was a big gathering hall where about 100 of these golfers would meet before the scramble started. And I walked in, and I remember the moment I walked in, it became very evidently clear to me that I did not belong in that room, right? (laughs) And part of it was the response of the people. Like, as soon as I walked in, everyone looked at me, and it was like one of those record scratching, everyone stop what they're doing and stare at me and murmur kind of moments. And the reason, of course, was because of what I was wearing, Um, That morning when I got up, I didn't even think about what to wear, and so I just wore what I always wore, which of course for me consisted of a pair of jeans, a cotton t-shirt, and a pair of flip-flops because that's just what I always wear and my rusty golf clubs. And so I walked in, and it became real clear to me I didn't belong in that room. In fact, the song that was going through my mind, you guys remember that Sesame Street song? One of these things is not like the other, right? I was like, I am not like, because all these guys, man, they were decked out in golf gear, right? They had on the white golf cleats. They had on the plaid golf shorts. They had on the Callaway collared shirt. They had on the, you know, the Greg Norman hat, the Michael Jackson glove, like, these guys were just, like, decked out with their shiny clubs. I was like, I don't belong in this room. Well, to make matters worse, uh, once they saw me, of course, they kind of chuckled. They made comments about my flip-flops. And they're like, hey, you know, you're going to play in flip-flops today? You know, and I'm like, hey, you're going to play in those shorts, you know? And, uh, but to make matters worse, when it came time to tee off, I don't know if it's because I was on staff or it's because I look like an idiot, but everyone wanted to watch me tee off. And so I was like, oh, geez. So I remember going to tee off, and I went up to the, um, I don't even know what you call it, the box? What is it, the grass? I have no idea what you call it. So I went up there, and there's I, I I a whole bunch of guys surrounding me, you know, and I was just like, I remember just throwing up a quick prayer. It's like, God, Please don't make me look like more of an idiot than I already am. I mean, I have literally never done this before, right? And I was like, in my mind, it's like, I have to prove to these guys that I know how to do this. So I'm like, I'm just gonna swing as hard as I can, man. I'm gonna slam this ball. And so I just, with everything in me, I just swung and I totally missed the ball. (laughs) Just like totally missed it. Of course, they laughed. And so after a few failed attempts, I finally did hit the ball. But when I hit it, I just hit the top of it, you know? And it just like fell five feet and... Everyone laughed and took pictures, and (laughs) I was glad that I was the entertainment for that morning. But why do I tell you that story? Here's why I tell you that story. The the whole reason I tell you that story, because isn't it true, isn't it true that there are certain outward symbols that quickly allow you to identify what someone is associated with? It's true with everything. And when I walked into that golf shop that morning with all those golfers, it was very clear that I was not a golfer. Uh, The outward appearance was enough to tell you that I don't do this, Right? And isn't it true, on the other hand, that whenever you see a person who's wearing white golf cleats and the Greg Norman shirt and the Callaway hat and all that kind of stuff, it is a clear indication that that person is associated with the game of golf. That is true with a lot of things in life, right? So for example, if you're a woman and you like to wear jeggings and Ugg boots and North Face and you like to to sport a Starbucks cup of coffee and say the word cute often, uh, chances are real good you like to shop at Target, right? That's just a given. (laughs) It's just a given. My, my wife likes to shop at Target a lot. It's funny. One time without telling her, when we went into Target, I just started to count in my head from the time we entered in how long it would take before the word cute left her mouth. 36 seconds. That's all it took. And, uh, but it's, it's easy to identify some of those things, right? Like if you go into a coffee shop and there in the corner is a guy working on his MacBook Pro and he has on a flannel shirt with a beard and thick frame glasses and a beanie cap and a very complex cup of coffee in his hand, you know you're dealing with a hipster, right? If he looks like a lumberjack without the calluses, he's a hipster and you know it, right? Because there's something outward about that. If you're, if you're a middle-aged man and, uh, and you sometimes wear socks with your sandals and when you're on vacation you wear a fanny pack because it's practical, right? <laughs> You're an embarrassing dad. Like, that's just all there is to it. Everyone knows that about you. Okay, so <clears throat> we go on and on, but you get the idea, right? Why do I say all that? I say all of that to ask you this question. What is the outward symbol that identifies that a person is a disciple of Jesus, all right? What is the, what, it, what is the, the, what Greg Norman and Calloway is to golf, all right? Uh, what Jaggings and Ugg boots and North Face is to target, uh, what plaid shirts and big beards is to hipsters, what is the outward symbol that allows you to identify quickly if a person is a disciple of Jesus? Is it a Jesus you know, fish on the back of their car? Is that what it is? Is it a bumper sticker that says something about God or about Jesus? Is it that you hold a certain political view on certain issues? Is that what it is? Well, it's awesome because, you know, the Bible actually tells us what it is. Jesus actually tells us himself, and I'll just show this to you. You don't have to turn there. We'll get to Philippians 2 in a second, but I just want to show you what Jesus says in John 13. Here's what Jesus said. He said, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Look at this. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Here's what Jesus says. He says, you want to know the mark? Mark. You want to know what it is that's going to identify you as a disciple of me? He says it's love. It's love. In other words, here's what Jesus says. If you're a follower of Jesus and you are growing in your biblical knowledge and you are growing in your church involvement, which, by the way, those are awesome things, but you're not growing in your love for God and for others, then you're doing it wrong. Something's wrong, something's off because what Jesus says, he says, listen, if you you truly are my disciple and you truly do follow me, it's gonna show up. And the mark of that is ultimately through love. But I think it's important that we clarify that when Jesus says the mark of a Christian is love, that he's referring to a very specific kind of love. He's not just talking about some kind of kumbaya, warm feelings, kind of warm, fuzzy type of thing. I think he's thinking about a different type of love than we tend to define it. As you guys know, in our culture, we have a certain definition of love. In fact, I actually went online uh, to an online dictionary this week, and I looked up kind of the baseline definition of love, and here's what I found. Love, according to the online dictionary, is a feeling of strong or constant affection for a person or a thing. That's, that tends to be the way we define love, right? It's a noun. It's, uh, it's something that you fall in. It's something that you fall out of. It's a strong feeling of affection. That's what love is. But I just want you to know that when Jesus says the mark of a Christian is love, he's talking about something much deeper and much more profound than this type of love. What kind of love is he talking about? Well, I want you to look in at John 13. Look what Jesus says again. He says, a new commandment I give you, love each other, love one another. Look at this, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So Jesus says the kind of love that marks you as a disciple of Jesus is not just a warm, fuzzy, kumbaya love, it is Christ-like love. It is loving like Jesus' love. And all of that begs a really important question. If, if, if the mark of a disciple of Jesus is Christ-like love, loving like Jesus did, how did Jesus love? How did he love? Uh, what, is, what does the love of Christ look like? And you see, that's where Philippians chapter 2 comes in. Because in Philippians chapter 2, I believe what we have in front of us, I like to call it kind of the template of Christ-like love. This is the blueprint of Christ-like love. This will define for us how is it that Jesus Christ has loved us. And then, of course, the question, the natural question and response is, how is it that we are called to love for those of us who follow Jesus? And we're going to find that in this passage. So let's read it together. Philippians chapter 2, here's how it starts. In verse 1, the apostle Paul says, therefore... If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, he says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Look at this next part. Having the same love, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind, right? So Apostle Paul says, man, if you have any encouragement in Christ, if you have any comfort in his love, he says, make my joy complete, and I want you to have the same love and what kind of love are you talking about, Paul? Well, he's gonna go on to define it. Look at verse three. This is the love he's talking about. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others as above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you looking to the interests of others. Right, so let's just pause there for a minute. Uh, let's just break this, the, the, these couple of verses down because they're so powerful. I want you to notice how the Apostle Paul first starts. He says, do nothing, do no thing, do not a thing, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now those two terms right there are very powerful terms and they're worth our consideration. So the first thing he says is this. He says, do nothing, not a thing, out of selfish ambition. Some of you might have different translations there. The whole idea behind selfish ambition is self-exaltation. It is self-promotion. It is, I am considering my needs and my interests above those of other people. That's the idea. In fact, this word, selfish ambition, back in Bible times was used in a couple other ways. Let me just give you a couple of those. One of the ways in which this term was used was to talk about a mercenary soldier. Now, just think about that for a minute. You guys know what a mercenary soldier is, right? Mercenary soldier is a soldier who fights for pay. Uh, They don't fight for your cause. They don't fight for your country. They fight for a paycheck. They don't fight for your country. They don't fight for your cause. They fight for their own interests. And everyone knows you don't trust a mercenary soldier, you don't wanna go into battle with a guy like that because he ain't gonna lay it down because he's looking out for himself. And so in one way that this term was used, it was to speak of a mercenary soldier. Another sense in which that term was used, and this is actually pretty relevant to our current cultural situation. I think all of us can relate with this. It was also a term that was used to refer to political campaigning. Think about that, political campaigning, right? What are you doing when you're, when you're campaigning politically? You're canvassing around promoting yourself exalting yourself, trying to tell everyone, this is why I should be in office and this is why that person shouldn't. Here's the 10 reasons why I'd be the best president and here's the 47 reasons that person wouldn't be. Back when they were in fourth grade, they used to torture their dog. You know, blah, blah, and I endorse this message and, and all that kind of thing. That's the picture that comes to our mind. And so the Apostle Paul says, do nothing, do not a thing out of selfish ambition, self-promotion, self-exaltation, self, self um Putting yourself up on a pedestal, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, the second part, he says, or vain conceit. A vain conceit's also a really interesting term. Some of you guys have the translation that says this, do nothing out of vain glory or empty glory. Literally, it means useless glory. It is to seek out my own glory, to puff myself up, to, 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 to make myself... Um, elevated in some way. And so all of these terms, both of these terms do nothing out of selfish ambition or vacancy. What do they have in common? And both of these terms are talking about a self-exaltation, a self-inflation, a um, self-ascension, right? There's an upward motion to all of this. I'm glorifying myself. I'm putting myself on top. I'm looking out for number one. I'm considering my needs and interests above everyone else's. Everyone else is below me. That's what all this has in common. And so he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vacancy. He says, But, and I want you to know this next word, in humility. The word humble literally means to make oneself low. He says, In humility. He says, Look at this. He says, I want you to value others as above you. And so, so you see the difference here. He says, don't, don't, don't seek selfish ambition and vacancy. Don't put yourself up here. He says, No, instead, Put yourself down here, humble yourself, consider the needs of others, value the needs of others above your own. And then he says, not looking out for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. The Apostle Paul says, this is the type of love that Christ has called us to. Not, not, not a love that seeks self-interest, not a love that seeks self-promotion, not a love that says, I'm looking out for number one. He says, no, a love that says, I'm deliberately gonna put myself low to consider the needs of others is above myself. I think it's important at this point for me just to clarify, by the way, that what the Apostle Paul is advocating here is not for a Christian to be a person who is self-loathing and self-deprecating. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying that Christians should just always have a low self-esteem and always putting themselves down and just saying things like, I stink, I stink. You're like, no, you don't. You're awesome. No, I'm not. You're awesome. I stink, right? That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, no, 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 no. I'm not saying to have a self-deprecating attitude. He's saying, I'm saying instead, think about others above yourself. Consider the needs of others. This is the love that we're called into. I don't think any of us in this room would argue that that type of love that the Apostle Paul is is advocating here for is, I I don't think any of us would argue that it is the most beautiful form of love you can imagine. I mean, can you guys just for a second, can you imagine if we lived in a society that was marked by this type of love. Can you imagine if we lived in a society where this type of love, not seeking my own interests, not exalting myself, but instead humbly looking to serve the other needs of can you imagine if that was pervasive in our society? Can you imagine how different the news would look? How different Facebook would look? Can you imagine how different social media would look if that was the case? Can you imagine how different debates would look, how different everything would look if they said, I'm not looking out for my own interests, but I'm in humility seeking the needs of other people. Guys, can you imagine how different our church would look? How incredible it would be if we lived in a church that that, that, was, that kind of love was the culture that we brave, that we would breathe in, where we would serve each other in humility, not seeking out our own preferences, not seeking out our own, our, our, our own interests, but considering the needs of others above ourselves. Guys, can you imagine what your marriage would look like if you were committed to that type of love where both husband and wife said, rather than seeking my own interest and my own preferences and my own whatever, instead I'm going to humbly seek the interest of the other. Can you imagine if both parties did that? Can you imagine what that would look like? I think if you can get a picture in your mind of what that might look like, you're starting to envision the type of love that we are called into for those of us who follow Christ. There's a problem with that, and I think you know this as well as I do. The problem is this. While that sounds beautiful and that sounds amazing, it sounds idealistic and that sounds impossible because the problem is that you and I both, and we we all know this, that we by nature are all very selfish people. Our natural inclination is not to humbly serve other people in love. Our natural inclination, our natural proclivity is to exalt ourselves and look out for our own interests. That is true. You and I, we both have this same thing inside of us that we are naturally selfish people. We are naturally self-interested. And if you don't believe me, let me just ask you this question. The last time that someone took a group photo of you, right, with someone else and you saw that group photo, who was the first person you looked at? Who was it? It was you, right? And I know that because the last time someone took a group picture of me, I was the first person I looked at. And is it not true that when you look at that group photo, you will judge whether or not that's a good photo solely on the fact if you think you look good or not, right? Everyone else could look like idiots. They could look like a train wreck, but you think you look good. And you're like, that's a good picture. We ought we to frame that somewhere. That's really nice, right? Isn't that true? Why is that? It's because by nature, we are naturally self-centered people. And so how are we supposed to love like this? Because the problem is it's so idealistic. Well, here's the cool thing. The Bible never commands us to do anything without first explaining to us how we can do it. The Apostle Paul never commands us to do anything without plugging us into the power by which that commandment is accessible. And so what is the power? How is this possible? Well, that's the next part. I want you to notice what he says in verse five. He says, in your relationship with one another, He says, I want you to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Ah, here we go. Here's where the power's at. How how are we gonna love this way? He says, here's how you do it. He's like, think about Jesus for a minute. He says, think about Christ. Think about the way that he loved. He says, I want you to take on the same mentality, the same mindset that Christ took upon himself. And what was the mindset that Christ took upon himself? Well, watch, check out this next part, verse six. This is one of the most incredible little passages in all of scripture. I love this. He says, who, Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. All right, let me just pause there. So the apostle Paul says, listen, man, if you wanna love like this, if you wanna really love the way Jesus loved, he said, then what you need to do is you need to think about Christ and you need to take on the same mentality that Christ had. And what was the mentality that Christ had? He says, here's where it begins. He was equal with God. Some of you have different translations. It might say that Jesus had had the same form as God. You guys, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ holds the highest seat of honor and authority. That Jesus Christ is preeminent over all creation. Colossians chapter one says that Jesus Christ, that through him, all things were made by him, through him, for him, and in him. Everything was made because of Christ. Jesus said about himself, he said, I and the Father am one. Jesus was equal with God. He was in the very form of God. He sat at the right hand of God. All the luxuries and riches of heaven were his. The Bible says he did not consider equality with God a thing to be used to his advantage. In other words, Jesus didn't use his high seat of authority and his high seat of power to to, to authoritatively power monger over people. That's not what he did. But instead, what did he do? Look what it says in verse seven. It says, rather... Rather, Jesus made himself nothing. Some of you guys have translations that say Jesus Christ emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking on the very nature of a servant. And the word servant there, by the way, back in Bible times was used to refer to the very lowest social position imaginable. A servant was the lowest of the low back in that time. And it says that Jesus Christ emptied himself. He made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming humbled, made himself low, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You guys see what the apostle Paul says here? He says, listen, do nothing out of, out of selfish ambition and vain, don't exalt yourself. Don't put yourself up here. Don't promote yourself and look out for your own interests. He says, and instead, lower yourself, man. Become humble and serve the needs of other people as above you. And then he says, and why? And why do we do that? He says, because think about Jesus the heights from which he descended. Christ at the right hand of God, all luxuries of heaven were his. And think about the depths to which he descended. Talk about a descent. How low did Jesus go? The Bible says that he didn't just put on flesh and come here and put on kingly robes. The Bible says he didn't just put on flesh and come here as a high power political leader. The Bible says, no, 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 he went lower. Took on the form of a servant and then he died a criminal's death. Emptied himself. He didn't, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be used to his advantage, but he poured it out. And why did he do that? For us, for our sake. See, he lost that we might gain. And the Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul says this, he says, the kind of love that we are called to is Christ-like love. And how would you define Christ-like love? Well, Philippians 2 is the definition of Christ-like love. If I could put it in my own words, here's how I'd say it. I'd say Christ-like love is this. This is my definition. Christ-like love is saying, I'm choosing to lose that others might gain. That's what Christ-like love is, according to Philippians 2. It's choosing to lose that others might gain. Choosing to lose what? Choosing to lose preference. Choosing to lose uh, luxuries. Choosing to lose my rights, choosing to lose, why? For the sake of someone else that they might gain. That is Christ-like love. And that is the type of love that we're called into. One of the, um, I think one of the clearest examples of this type of love uh, that is in all of scripture, at least for me, of this type of love is when I think about Jesus's final moments on this earth. And you know, the Bible tells us about, about the last moments that Jesus had on this planet and uh, with his disciples before he went to the cross. And one of the passages that has always gripped my heart is in John chapter 13. You don't have to flip there. I'll just show this to you. But in John chapter 13, I just want you to notice this. Okay, so just imagine this. Jesus, this is the night before he dies for the sins of humanity. If there's ever a night where you're just like, I'm gonna be selfish tonight. Like this would be the night. Tomorrow I'm gonna die for the sins of the world. I think I can have a night off. And, and, but look what it says. This is crazy. John 13, verse 2. It says, the evening meal was in progress. This is the Last Supper, right? So you guys remember that painting? It says, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. Now, let me just pause there for a minute. I just want you to consider for a minute the fact pattern of of these two verses. So it says in, in these two verses, the evening meal had happened, Jesus already knew that Judas was gonna betray him. He already knew that. Jesus already knew he was gonna face the cross. He knew that. Jesus already knew that when he went to the cross, the disciples, who he had invested every waking moment in for the past three years, were going to abandon him. He knew that. But look what else he knew in verse three. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. So in other words, Jesus also knew he was the most powerful person in the universe at that moment. Now, and, what did, and what did Jesus do with that fact pattern? Well, before I tell you what Jesus did, let me tell you what I would do if I had that fact pattern. All right? If I had that fact pattern, um, these guys that I have invested in are all going to abandon me. That guy's going to betray me. I'm going to go to the cross tomorrow, and I'm the most powerful person in the universe. You know what I would do? I'd be like, forget it, man. I'm gonna use this power for my advantage and I'm gonna destroy all these guys, right? These, these 11 guys who are gonna abandon me, I'm gonna like, you know, do something with my magic God powers that's really, you know, give them an itchy rash or something. And then Judas, like, he's gonna betray me. So I want him to be hated by everyone. So I don't know, I'm gonna like, use my magic God powers and make him a cat or something, you know? And that's what I'm gonna do. And I'm just gonna use my powers to, to, to leverage them for my own advantage. But you guys, the, the cool thing is the Bible says this. It says that Jesus Christ did not consider equality with God a thing to be used to his advantage. So what did he do when he realized, look what it says, it says this in verse four, so, it's one of the most powerful two letters in the entire Bible, so. So he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, he wrapped a towel around his waist, he took on the position of a servant. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he started to wash their feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What did Christ do in the final moments before he went to the cross? He was serving his disciples. He was washing their feet. And not just that, in John chapter 17, the Bible says the night before Jesus went to the cross, you know what he was doing? He was praying. He was praying for them, and he was praying for us. And then in John chapter 19, it says that Jesus gave. He gave everything on the cross. He gave his very life. We looked at 2 Corinthians last week, that Jesus who was rich made himself poor that we might become rich. And he did all of that for the sake of his disciples that they might also turn and make disciples. And so what did Jesus do? He chose to lose and he prayed and he served and he gave and he made disciples and he did it all that we might gain. This is the kind of love. And the Bible says that once we realize what Jesus Christ has done for us, that he has made a decision to choose to lose that we might gain, that that love begins to grip our hearts. And when it begins to grip our hearts and it begins to work itself in us, that it starts to ooze out of us. And that people know that we're disciples because we are armed and we are equipped with that same type of love. So at the the beginning of this message, I said one of the reasons that we're going to Saturday services is because of what we believe about love. And so, practically speaking, some of you are like, "So, what exactly does that mean? How does that actually work itself out?" I think the best way to explain that, quite honestly, is is like this. All right, the best way I know how to explain it. So, back in 1944, in Barberton, Ohio, right, Barberton of all places. Can anything good come out of Barberton? At Barberton, Ohio, there was a. uh, Sorry, if you're from Barberton, Uh, not because I said that, but because you're from Barberton, right? I'm I'm joking. (laughs) I'm joking, don't, don't hurt me. So, so Barberton, Ohio, back in 1944, there was a handful of people who were disciples of Jesus and they were gripped, gripped by the love of Christ. And they said, man, Jesus Christ chose to lose that we might gain. And they said, so you know what? We're gonna choose to lose that others might gain. And so they did. They said, we're gonna start praying for our community. We're gonna start serving the needs of our community. They said, we're gonna start giving of our time and our resources for the sake of the people around us. And they said, we're gonna make disciples. We're gonna make, we're gonna pray, serve, give and make disciples. And they did and they actually started a little church in 1944, it was called the Barberton Bible Church with a handful of people. They didn't even have a building. They met in a baker shop of all places and they would meet in there and they said, we are so gripped with the love of Jesus. We don't even know what we're doing but we're gonna take this love of Jesus. Christ chose to lose for our sake. And so we're gonna choose to lose for the sake of our community. And they did. And as a result of that, they gained. And more people came to Christ, and more disciples were made, and more lives were impacted and transformed by the gospel. And as that happened, more people were were gripped by the love of Jesus. And they said, man, Jesus Christ chose to lose for us, Philippians chapter 2. And so we want to choose to lose for other people. And so they said, we'll pray, we'll serve, we'll give, we'll make disciples, we'll lay aside our rights and our preferences and those things. If it means that we can gain for the sake of the gospel, and they did. And that church grew, and fast forward about till 1955. In 1955, they said, you know what? We, 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 we need a permanent place for us to meet as a church. And so they, they in faith, went, and they bought a plot of land, and for $15,000, uh, they, they established the first church on, in uh, Norton, Ohio, cleveland Massillon Road. As some of you guys might know, it's a picture. Some of you guys might know, this is actually our, our Norton campus, it's the first picture of our Norton campus. It doesn't look like that anymore. Uh, but that was the first picture of our Norton campus. I thought this was kind of a fascinating uh, fact. I don't know if this is intriguing to you at all. But when they were building the building, I guess what they would do is they met in a cheese factory. And so when the building was being completed, they met at a cheese factory, which I just thought was awesome for some reason. I thought there's got a, the jokes must have abounded for them in that time. And anyway, the, the, this group of people said, man, we, we are so gripped by the love of Jesus. Jesus has chose to lose for us. We wanna to choose to lose for the sake of our community, and they did. And that church grew, and they made disciples, and more people were impacted with the gospel as a result of these people's efforts. Fast forward a little bit more, in 1973, there was a young, uh, very good-looking, very short pastor uh, by the name of Pastor Bob Combs. And some of you might know Pastor Bob. Pastor Bob Combs is actually still at the Norton Campus. Pastor Bob came in, and he, he came in as the, uh, as the senior pastor of Grace Church in 1973, And Pastor Bob was a man who was gripped by the sacrificial love of Jesus. He he used to say, in fact, to this day, he still says it, but from day one, one of the things he said was, he said, we need to be a church where where we will meet you where you are so that we can take you where you need to go. We need to be a church that meets people where they are so we can take them where they need to go. And that is Christ-like love. That's exactly what Jesus did in Philippians chapter two. Christ said, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to empty myself of my glory to meet you where you are so that I can take you where you need to go. And Pastor Bob was gripped by this love of Jesus. And he said, Jesus Christ chose to lose that we might gain. And so we as a church, we need to choose to lose that others might gain. And so we need to pray and we need to serve and we need to give and we need to make disciples together. And they did. And that church grew explosively. And then in the mid-90s, about 1993, they finally got to a place where where they had grown so much they needed to add staff. And in 1993, Pastor Bob started a conversation with a young man who was fresh out of college by the name of Jeff Bogue. Jeff Bogue, as some of you guys might know, he's the senior pastor of Grace Church today. I actually pulled up this picture. I wanted to show you this picture of him partially because he looks creepy in it and uh, (laughs) Heidi's pregnant, but especially because of, of that guy back there. You see him? That, I don't know who that is, but that's got to easily be one of the creepiest pictures I've ever seen in my life. So I thought maybe that'd be worth showing you. A Pastor Jeff came in in 1993, and he was a man, and he and Heidi were gripped with the love of Jesus. They said, man, Jesus chose to lose that we might gain, and so we, 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 we sign up. We want to choose to lose that others might gain as a result of that, and so they continued to lead. Jeff is a phenomenal leader, and And that church continued to grow, and people continued to be gripped with the love of Jesus and said, we'll choose to lose. We'll pray, we'll serve, we'll give, we'll make disciples. And around that same time, about in the mid-90s, there was another church up the street. That church was called the Fairlong Grace Brethren Church. And that church has its own story that we we don't have time to get into. But basically, by the late 90s, uh, this church uh, had, had underwent a lot of leadership transitions, and it was facing a very critical decision. The church had dwindled down. There was about 60 people there. But those people that were there, they were faithful and they loved Jesus and they were gripped with the love of Christ. As a matter of fact, as a result of this group of people and as a result of that church, that's how I came to know Christ. I came to know Christ at the Fair Long Grace Brother Church when I was 17 years old because a group of people said, we'll lose if it means that other people might gain. We'll, we'll lose our, our time and our energy and those things if it means that these teenagers will be reached for Jesus. And I came to know Christ as a result of that in the late 90s though this church was in a place where they were getting ready to shut their doors and they were facing some big critical decisions and basically they said this they said listen we can either choose to stay as we are we can either choose what's comfortable to us we can choose our preferences we can choose what we've always done or they said or we can choose to lose we can choose to lose if it means that other people might gain then we'll do that and they and they said we'll do it and that group of people basically started a conversation with pastor Bob I said, Pastor Bob, would you consider starting another campus of Grace Church? And that's how the Bath Campus started. In the year 2000, in January 2000, the Bath Campus uh, started over in Fairlawn, what used to be the Fairlawn Grace Brethren Church. I just got to tell you, for those people who were part of that Fairlawn Grace Brethren Church, that was not easy for them. That was a deliberate decision to choose to lose. They laid aside their comforts. They laid aside their preferences. And I'll never forget, Jeff, Jeff tells this story about a woman that I, I actually knew very well very loved woman. Her name was Arletta Peters. I actually have a picture of her. This is Arletta. Arletta is such a sweet, sweet woman. By the time the bath campus started, she was about 80 years old at that time. Uh, She was a widow. Uh, She had been a widow for about 15 years up to that point. Uh, Since this picture, of course, she's she's went home to be with Jesus. But I never forget a conversation that Jeff uh, recounts. I love it when he tells a story. But he said when they were talking about starting the bath campus, uh, one of the people that that was part of the Fairlong Grace Brethren Church was Arletta. And Arletta came up to Jeff after one of the meetings and she said, Jeff, she said, if we do this, if we do this campus thing, I know it's gonna be a lot of changes. I know it's gonna upset a lot of the the things that we are already doing and the things that we're comfortable with. And she said to Jeff, she said, but if we do this, does that mean that we're gonna reach young people for Jesus? And Jeff said, Arletta, that's our goal. That's the one thing we're after. And Arletta said, this is so awesome. Arletta said, if that's the case, then I'm in. I am in. She said, I'll lay aside my preferences. I'll lay aside my rights. I'll lay aside what's comfortable to me. I will choose to lose if it means that others might gain. And Arletta did that because she's a disciple of Jesus. And that's what disciples of Jesus do. She laid aside her, it wasn't easy for her. In fact, I remember the bath campus, she used to put cotton balls in her ears when the music was playing because it was too loud and she'd have to cover her eyes because Jeff was so ugly. And she had to do all of that. It was a sacrifice for her. To do those things, I remember so many. I would come in on Sunday morning, and I would go back behind the coffee, and I'd say hi to Arletta. She was such a sweet woman, and I cannot tell you how many times I would talk to her with tears in her eyes. She would look out at the cafe, and she would see all the young families and all the crazy kids jumping all over stuff, just like in our cafe. It's like a jungle gym, kids hanging on stuff, and that type of. And I remember so many times with tears in her eyes. Instead of saying, these kids, and these they, they, people need to get control of their kids. She wouldn't do that. Instead, with tears in her eyes, she would say, I love that there are so many young people here. Just because they need to know Jesus. And she chose to lose because she knew that if she would lose, that others might gain. And you guys, there's a group of people from the Norton campus who said, we'll choose to lose. We'll get up. We'll leave a very established church. And we will get up and we will come and we will pray and we'll serve and we'll give and we'll make disciples and we'll be part of a pioneering movement to start the Bath Campus. As you guys know, the Bath Campus has grown exponentially since its inception in the year 2000. Well, around all of that, about the same time, in the mid nineties, there was another group of people, another group of people that were right here in Medina, Ohio, a group of people who were disciples of Jesus who were gripped by the love of Christ. Jesus Christ chose to lose that we might gain. And so we are so compelled that we wanna choose to lose that others might gain. And so that group of people said, we're gonna pray and we're gonna serve, we're gonna give and we're gonna make disciples. And they started a church right here in this very place that we're in. It's called the Shepherd's Grace Church. Some of you guys don't know that. Uh, back in 1996 and 1997, there was a pioneering group of people who were equipped with the love of Jesus who began to work right here. In fact, I'll just show you, this is a news article. I think this is really cool. It says, newly formed Shepherds Grace Church finds home and services in a local factory. I don't know what it is about churches meeting in factories, but apparently that's a thing, right? But they would meet here, and, and it, this was actually a plastic molding factory. And, and those people, man, those people, they, they prayed. In fact, let me just show you a picture. This is a picture of of. Actually, this, this uh, warehouse space that you see up here on the left, that is right now our power Kids space. That's where your kids are right now. Uh, it doesn't look like that anymore, so they're safe, I promise, right? But over here, you can see one of the things that they would do is they would pray, and they would, they would write their prayers for the community. They'd write their prayers for, for, for their lost friends and neighbors who didn't know Christ on these. You guys don't know this, but these walls, these floors, everything, this land has been bathed in prayer more than you know, more than I know. The man who owned this land Before he purchased it, he walked it and prayed it and asked God that he would use this land for his glory and for his namesake. A group of people said, we'll pray. A group of people said, we'll serve. And they served. Most of the renovation that they did at the beginning, they did themselves. Just a couple pictures here. They served by by serving the next generation through through kids' ministries, through children's ministries. They made disciples, equipped with the love of Jesus to make disciples as they went along to do those things, man. This group of people was compelled with the love of Jesus. And then you fast forward to about 2012. About 2012, this church, Shepherds Grace, had underwent some transitions and they were put in a very critical place where they had to make some critical decisions. A small group of people that were here who loved Jesus and who were transformed by his love said, either we decide to stay where we are and we stay comfortable and we hold on to what's special to us. And it was special that we hold on to this they said or or we choose to lose and we lay aside our preferences and we lay aside our rights just like Jesus did so that others might gain and they started a conversation under the, the leadership of a guy named pastor John Summer if you guys don't know John Summer he's an amazing man he's actually one of our life group leaders here now amazing man of god underneath his leadership, basically started a conversation with Pastor Jeff and said, what if we started another campus of Grace Church? And that began the conversations for the Medina East Campus. And you guys, that decision for the Shepherd's Grace folks to say we are going to to, to choose to lose that we might gain was not an easy one. So we're gonna choose to lose our preferences. We're gonna choose to lose what's comfortable, what's special to us. They said, we're gonna choose to let some young, crazy Italian guy who, let's face it, is really good looking. Come in here and lead us. It's crazy. It's crazy, but they chose to lose. And you guys, there was a group of people from Bath and a group of people from Norton that said, we'll choose to lose too. And they raised their hand and they said, we will leave a fully established campus with full children's ministry and full youth ministries, and we will uproot our families from a church where it's easy to hide where it's easy to be the Christian ninja that slips in and slips out and gets what I need and that's all I do. They said, we will lose. We will come and we will pray and we will serve and we will give and we'll make disciples if it means that others might gain. December 2012, the Medina East Campus started. You guys, since then, the Barberton Campus has started. A group of people from Medina, from Bath and from Norton said, we'll choose to lose. We'll get up. We'll sacrifice off our comforts and our luxuries and our rights. We'll uproot our families. We'll pray, we'll serve, we'll give, we'll make disciples because Jesus Christ chose to lose that we might gain. We will choose to lose that others might gain. The Ellic campus is now starting. A group of people from Bath, a group of people from Medina, a group of people from Barberton and Norton said, we'll go. We you guys wanna hear something crazy? Right now, we're in the process of, of, of developing an Atlanta project. We're starting a new work in Atlanta at Grace Church and we're still ironing out the details before the details have even been ironed out, there's been a group of people that said, we'll go. Like, yeah, but we, you don't know what we're doing. do not care. We'll lose because that's what's happened. So many people have chosen to lose. Christ chose to lose that we might gain, and so we will do the same thing. Listen, here, here's the thing. I know for some of you, you might be thinking, that's neat you know, that we get to hear your family history. That's awesome. It has nothing to do with me. And some of you might be thinking to yourself, why are we looking at pictures of people I don't know and events that have nothing to do with me. Well, here's why, here's why. Because you need to know that the chair that you are sitting in right now, October 2nd, 2016, in this room, the chair you are sitting in right now sits on top of a mountain. We, We stand on the legacy of men and women who have come before us in generations who said we choose to lose that others might gain that just like Christ chose to lose, we stand on the shoulders of men and women who have come before us, who have been equipped with the love of Jesus, that choose to lose, that others might gain. You guys, I don't don't know, I don't think that handful of people in Barberton who said, we're gonna meet at this baker shop and, and we're just so transformed by the love of Jesus. We're gonna pray and serve and give and make disciples and we're gonna lose, that others might gain. I don't think they had any idea what they're losing would gain for them. If you told that people back in 1944, if you went to them and said, hey, you know, in 2016, Easter of 2016, did you know that as a result of your losing, that 10,000 people in the greater Akron area are gonna connect to the gospel through Grace Church? I think it would have blown their minds. And you guys, I say all that to say this. I don't think you and I have any idea what God could do with us if we decided that we would choose to lose for the sake that others might gain. We don't know the long reaching effects that that decision might have, that God can use it. But here's the awesome news. We don't have to worry about the gaining because we can worry about the losing. And when we when we focus on the losing, God takes care of the gaining. And so I know for some of you, even as we're having this conversation, this whole idea of choosing to lose that others might gain, for some of you, it scares you. Honestly, it's a scary conversation. It's scary because it takes faith. But the other reason it's scary, quite honestly, is because for some of you are thinking, well, hold on a minute though, hold on. Let's not get too carried away. If I choose to lose for the sake of others, then who's gonna look out for me? Who's gonna look out for my needs? Who's gonna make sure that I get the things that I need? What about my preferences? For some of us, we feel that way. And listen, this is where I think the rest of this passage comes in because I want you to notice what the apostle Paul says as he closes out. He says, Jesus Christ, who sat in the highest place, descended to the lowest place. But then look at this. Verse nine, therefore God exalted him. See, Jesus didn't have to exalt himself. But God would exalt him. Jesus could focus on humbling himself because God is the one who would lift him up. So it says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, the highest place. He gave him the name that is above every name, that at the, knee, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue in heaven and earth would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here's the paradoxical principle. Jesus Christ chose to lose that we might gain, and it was through that that God exalted him. Because the Bible is replete with this. The Bible says on so many occasions, humble yourself in the eyes of God, and in due time, he will lift you up. You don't have to worry about the gaining. You can focus on the losing and let God take care of the gaining. God will take care of our needs. James says the same thing. Peter says the same thing. If you choose to lose, God will increase. God will cause the gains for us. Mess the band to come up. And as they settled in, I just figured I'd end with, with a couple different statements. You know, the first week we said that we're blessed to bless. We said we're rescued to rescue. We said we're given to given. And here's what I want you to hear me say today. We are humbly loved to humbly love. Jesus Christ loved us with humility. He chose to lose that we might gain. And when that begins to transform our hearts, we in turn love in the same way uh, that Jesus Christ loved us. We choose to lose. I think Jim Elliott probably said it best. Some of you may have heard this quote. Jim Elliott was a, a missionary, um, and he, he ended up uh, losing his life for his faith in Jesus Christ. He, he was martyred. Uh, he actually was murdered because of his faith in Christ. And uh, before he died, in one of his journals, he wrote this. And I think this is so powerful. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I want to say thank you because um, without you, this love is impossible. We don't, we, don't have, we don't have it the wherewithal in ourselves to love at this capacity. But Jesus, you have loved us with a love that is unearthly. You have loved us with a love that is so alien and so characteristically different than anything we've ever experienced. And God, when that that love begins to become internalized in our hearts, Father, it oozes out of us and it becomes the true mark and identifier that we are your disciples. If we follow you, we love like you. So God, I pray that as a result of today's conversation that you would call us into a radical, other-centered love. God, the truth is we're imperfect people. I'm an imperfect person. God, we mess up. But the thought that you can use us in our imperfection to bring glory to your name, to reach others for the sake of the good news, Jesus, that is an amazing thought. Father, there is joy to be found in laying it down for you. And so Christ, I pray that you would compel us to love in the way that you've loved us, God, to choose to lose that others might gain. We pray these things in Jesus' name.